0: It says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity to get into your word. Father, we thank you for your evidence of past and future grace. Father, today we have our founding pastor Fred sitting among us and his wife, God, and we thank you for the grace you've given us um, and being a church because of your work in the past, God. And we thank you, Lord, right now as Brandon is preaching in Tennessee, um, filling the pulpit and sharing the gospel as a ministry of Grace Church, um, Father. We thank you, God, that you use your men um, and women to fulfill your work. And we uh, pray, Father, that you'll be gracious and let us be fruitful. So be with us today as we open your word. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. May we be Uh Well, if you were here last week, then you know that we were in Exodus chapter 21 to 23. And we took a 30,000 foot flyover uh the law is like 90 something versus 40 laws um and the number one feedback i got all week long was whoo which told me we needed to give it another go right and so uh for the next 3 weeks we're going to look specifically at justice at uh loving kindness and at walking humbly with your god and we're going to look at those individually the task is really hefty when you come to approaching exodus And the laws in Exodus. Imagine, just, just so you can appreciate my hardship, allow me to, to be whiny for just a moment. Imagine walking into a lawyer's office and coming across a stack of manila folders that are his cases and case laws. Okay? These are just cases he's done over the past, I don't know, 50 years. Okay? It's a long, I guess it's a long tenure for a lawyer, I guess. Anyway, uh, so you decide that you're gonna take that stack of case laws You're then just going to pick them up wholesale. You're going to walk into a university and teach U.S. law from that case law, from that stack of case laws. It's quite a daunting task when you think about that, right? You're just going to open them up wholesale and start teaching law through them. That's kind of what we're doing here today as we pick up case laws. These are hypotheticals that God said, if this happens in your land, here's how you handle it. And now my task is to take that, make sense of it for you, and apply it to your life. And so, um, anyway, be gracious, be kind, um, and you you will not get everything possibly at, possible out of this text. But we will do our best. We saw that the law can be broken up into three basic categories uh, using Micah 6-8 as a model that uh, God has required us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. And though these three things are helpful for us, if we don't understand specifically how Jesus applied these and accomplished these tasks uh, and accomplished this law, then we will fail to see how the law propels us forward to the gospel. Matthew 5, Jesus clarified his position. as the text that Barry just read for us. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So considering Jesus' words from his own mouth and applying that to Exodus, what Jesus is saying is he hasn't come to abolish the Ten Commandments or any of the 40 some odd laws that he gives us in Exodus 21 through 23. But he's come to complete them, to do them. Again, using our threefold category, Jesus came to accomplish justice, mercy and humility with God. This sermon today is going to focus specifically on justice, how the law propels us to justice and how Jesus accomplished that justice. So we're going to look at four things. Number one, the Bible's definition of justice. Number two, we will see how these laws propel us, compel us to do justice number three we will consider how christ has fulfilled the law and done justice and finally we will consider how christ calls his people us to thirst for righteousness justice and in the end we will see one undeniable outcome the world needs justice justice comes in jesus therefore the world needs jesus that's one undeniable, maybe elementary, but it's worth looking at anyway. So let's look at the first question. What is justice according to the Bible? Justice is near to the heart of God. In fact, it's the failure to do justice that makes up the majority of the prophets that you find in your Bible. You open up to Amos, Hosea, Joel, any of those uh, prophets, and you find that one of the number one indictments against Israel is that they have failed to do justice. According to Micah, it is simply impossible to live a good life with God without doing justice. It is an essential ingredient for life with God. People who do not do justice, people who are unjust, are people who do not know God and do not know God's good. So that being said, what is it? Well, before we actually dive into the Scriptures to consider what justice is, it might be helpful to consider it philosophically. Um, most of you are evening news watchers. That's a privilege I, as a young dad, do not have. Um, uh, by the time the news comes on, we're asleep in the chair anyway. And so, um, But for those of you that watch news, imagine watching the nightly news, and you hear from the news anchor that uh, an accident has happened on your street. A young dad was walking to work for a second shift. He's working hard to provide for his family, and he gets swiped by a car. But the driver doesn't stop. He just speeds away. What are your reactions to that? Well, typically, if you're a human being and have a heart, then your reaction is, that's not right. I hope they catch the guy. There's something in you that just senses that something was done wrong. That there was a right way to do that. That, that something's out of order. Well, whenever you find yourself saying or feeling, that's not right. That's not the way things should be. That was inappropriate. We are ultimately dealing with a justice issue. Ultimately, that's what's at stake. Something inside of us, perhaps it's our conscience or the way we're wired by God, is stirred up when it sees something that is not the way it should be. And in this, we are acknowledging that there is a right way of doing things, an appropriate order to life, that there's a standard of good that determines how we should think, speak and act. This leads us to the Bible's concept of justice. The seedling idea of justice is planted all the way back in the Genesis uh, chapter one, verse thirty one, when God declared all that he had made as what very good. This is God's creation. It was very good. Now, justice, as it's developed throughout the scriptures, is God's standard of what is good. God's standard of what is good, it is God's right ordering of life and society, life and society as God intended it to be. The Bible uses all kinds of synonyms for justice, and they help us to illustrate the point. For example, you find three words throughout the Old Testament, righteousness, judgment and uprightness, all carrying the connotation of what is right. Righteousness, right, is the uh, is the act of living in the right way, more specifically in the right way that God has called us to. Second, you have judgment. And when you see judgment or judges or justice in the Old Testament, typically it has to do with deciding between right and wrong or deciding who's in the right and who's in the wrong. And then finally, you get the word upright, which literally means to be set up straight. It's not warped. It's not crooked. It's not fallen over. It's set up straight. Now, though he doesn't use the word upright specifically, the prophet Amos gives an illustration of how this works. He talks about the Lord in Amos 7 standing beside a wall with a plumb line. How many of you know what a plumb line is? Okay, that's great. I didn't know, so I had to look it up. Um, Plumb lines are basically, it's a string that you have a weight or a rock at the bottom and you put it up next to a wall and it tells you whether the wall is straight or not, right? Just natural gravity. It's just going to come down and tell you what's straight or not. So the Lord is standing next to the wall which represents Israel and He puts it on the top and the line goes down and guess what He finds? The wall is crooked. It's not upright. It's not just. And as it so happens, the nation of Israel was unjust. God had built the wall to be upright. The plumb line showed how crooked it had become and as a consequence, it showed why it needed to be torn down and built back up. Now, the same thing can be said about the world in general. It was built in justice, right? It was built upright. It was built like a straight wall. And now it's gone crooked. It's broken. It's now dilapidated, disintegrated. And God's plumb line, the law, shows just how crooked it's actually become and why God must be just in judging it. Therefore, when we talk about doing justice, what we're talking about is restoring the crooked wall to be upright again. When we declare and cry out for justice, we're saying the wall's crooked, it needs to be rebuilt, set it back up, rebuild it, straighten it back up. Put plainly, it's making wrong things right, making wrong things right. Now, let's let's consider that in line of the storyline of Scripture and where we're at in Exodus. The storyline of Scripture, as you read your Bible, you will see just how far humanity in the world itself has drifted from God's good order and intention, right? God made all things good. And that's the very thing that we can't say about humanity in the world today. Things are not the way that God made them to be. After Adam's sin, Cain killed his brother, right? Just something that you can't fathom. If you read Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, you can't fathom Genesis chapter 4. Things seem so good. People loved each other. People loved God. People walked with humility and mercy and kindness. And yet, in Genesis 4, you see a brother not just killing somebody else, but killing his very own brother, shedding his own blood. And then things get even worse when you get to Lamech, and Lamech begins to brag about it. Not only is he um, di- uh, disintegrating God's version of marriage by kind of oppressing women and taking them on um, as his in the word in it could be could be used as like concubine these are his slave women but he's also he's also bragging about how he slaughtered a young man genesis 6 comes in and we find out that the whole world was filled with violence and what's god's response to grieve it grieved him this is not the way it should have been after the flood things didn't get any better Nimrod became famous for his arrogance toward God and his violent aggression toward other nations. And so from there on out, after the fall, we see humanity divided, violence and death rampant. We see sex and marriage being completely torn down and broken down from what God intended it to be. And we have a humanity who is made to image the glorious, amazing, good God rebelling against Him and imaging not God but imaging something entirely different. And when we get to Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. And one of the things about Abraham is he promises the restoration of blessing to all the earth. And so in a way, God's saying, I'm going to reset it all. I'm going to put it all back into my good grace again. I'm going to bring the world back, restore what's been broken. I'm going to fix the ruin." And so he calls Abraham and his offspring and tells them that blessing will come to the whole world again through them. And now we get to Exodus where God has kept his promise to Abraham's descendants. They're on Mount Sinai and they receive the law. Now, if you think about the law and justice in the terms that we just laid out from a biblical definition, Israel is to live in the way that God intended. In many ways... They are to seek an Eden-like existence in the confines of their own nation. They're to live like Adam and Eve, obeying God's Word, seeking to do things the way that God has said. And when things don't go the way that God has said they should, then they are to fix it. They are to do justice. Make it right. Restore it. Set it back in order. So that being so, let's ask this question. How does the justice of the laws that we find in Exodus twenty-one, twenty-three? Restore God's good order in the lives of His people. Now, I gotta tell you, even breaking it up into a threefold part, justice, mercy, walking humbly with God, if we dealt individually with every verse, we'll be here all day. Okay? So, you gotta be forgiving in the sense that we're gonna, we're gonna look at thematically through it and consider how these laws restore God's good order. Okay? How do these laws do justice? Well, first, God's law sought to restore his people's view of all humanity, regardless of their ethnicity, social status, or gender, as made in the image of God. How does it do that? Other nations had slave systems. This was uh, not new in, in ancient culture. And slaves would be treated as subhuman. They were property. They were animals. They were Uh, something for you to wield your own will over at your whim, but not so in Israel. As we talked about it last week, even on Israel had slaves. These were more like indentured servants. These are not the slaves that we think about in the 16th century. There's a difference in the way that they, that they were. And we're going to see some of that today. Slaves were to be treated fairly. They were to be given rights to basic things such as marriage. We see that in chapter 21, verses 3 through 6. They were to be given food and clothing, twenty one uh, chapter 21, verses 7 through 10. And they were to be given a life free from the cruelty of the hands of masters. They weren't to be beaten whimsically, right? They weren't to be, if, if, if a slave master hit his servant in the eye and blackened it, the servant's to be set free. If he knocked out the slave's tooth from a punch, the slave's to be set free. If he killed the slave, then retribution is to be had and the master forfeits his own life. Because he has murdered not a slave, but a human being made in the image of God. Now, all of this culminates together in setting free slaves. Ultimately, Israel is to put their money where their mouth is. And because slaves, even slaves in their social status, were were made in the image of God, they were to put their money where their mouth was by setting them free on the seventh year. Here's what he says in chapter 21, verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. There weren't to be slaves for life. They were to honor God's people. God had made humanity as free. He did not make humanity be in slavery under other human beings. He made them to be free and to be servants of Him. So every seventh year... Israel was to practice this. Set them free. Let them go be humans made in the image of God. Servants only to God himself. Now you could be a slave because of your debts. You could be a slave because of your responsibilities, whatever it was. But it didn't matter how much a person owed. It didn't matter if they had paid off their debts or not. It didn't matter if they, if you had gotten all the work that you needed them out to get out of them. The fact of the matter is, seventh year comes, you set them free. They are people. Still more, God's law ensured that His people would not obstruct justice for the poor. Look at chapter 23, verse 6. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in His lawsuit. They were to be given the same rights as the wealthy, which once again impresses the equality of value between human beings. Why do the the poor deserve justice? Why should they not keep justice back from the poor? Because guess what? Poor or rich does not distinguish who is and who is not made in the image of God. A person's bank account doesn't establish whether a person is or is not made to reflect God's glory and to relate with Him. It doesn't matter how much money a person makes. They are to be treated as human beings and be given the basic rights such as justice. Second, God's law sought to restore the sanctity of marriage and sex. Human sexuality and marriage was God's design. You go all the way back to Genesis 2. Now, this is an important uh, message for our young people to hear. The church often teaches sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad. God made sex good when sex is done God's way. God made sex to be good when sex is done God's way. In Genesis 2, verse 24, we hear... God's heart, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. God made sex in marriage, sex to be done in marriage and not outside of it. He had good intentions for it. It was to be done for his glory and at the same time done for our good. Now, the laws in Exodus chapter 21, verse 23 are consistent with the sanctity of sex and marriage. In ancient cultures, um, we we don't understand this. I'm just going to give that out to you before we get too judgmental. Um, this this culture that Israel is in is so far removed from ours. We don't have any idea what it was like to live in that culture. But in that culture, it was commonplace for you to sell your daughter as a bride to be. You just that was that was honoring of your daughter. You're securing a life for her. You're helping make sure that she's taken care of, so you would sell her as a bondwoman, or in Hebrew, an Amah, which is meant specifically for marriage. And here's what it says when when you sell her and when she becomes a bride to be, in a sense, her new master is not to treat her like a slave. He's to treat her like a daughter. She becomes family to him. He's to provide for her and love her. And if his son grows up and says, Dad, I know you bought her to be my bride-to-be, but I don't want to marry her. Guess what? The master is not to change his position towards her at all. He is to still give her all of her rights. All of her marital rights. She is to be given food and clothing. She is to be given respect and love. And if he can't give that to her, then he is to set her free. Why? Because marriage is meant to mean something in Israel. It's not just something that you... Uh, just happen to do it's something that you are to be intentional about and so marriage is meant to mean something so you treat the bride to be as a person made in the image of god as an honorable institution the justice of the law continues on to to restore the sanctity of sex it was not to be seen in Israel as a merely carnal practice, right? When we when we think about sex in our Western culture, we tend to think, "Oh, it's just something something you do." Just it's, we even put it on uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? It's just something that people have a craving to do. But that is not the way that God made it. That's not the way that God describes it, and that's not the way Israel is to li- is to do it. In Exodus chapter twenty two, verse uh, sixteen to seventeen, here is what he says. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father refuses to give her to him, he shall pay the money equal to the bride price for virgins. Virgins. Now, a man having extramarital sex, according to God's word, whether our culture agrees with it or not, is outside the bounds of what God made it to do, right? Remember, God made sex good and in the bounds of marriage, If it's done outside the bounds of marriage, it ceases to be good. It ceases to be right. It ceases to be just. At that point in time, all we're talking about, and culturally speaking, we just gotta think about it like this. If we don't make sex mean something in the confines of marriage, then we're basically making it meaningless. We're treating our partner as meaningless and as nothing more than a piece of meat or property. That gives us pleasure. It's no longer about giving to the other. It's about taking. What can you do for me? God's law ensures that sex does not get disintegrated down into that. God's law makes sure that his Genesis 2 idea of sex being holy and sacred before God, that that is protected. And if a man does something to disintegrate that, he's to make it right. Okay? Okay. Now, third, I hope you can see like any one of these little points that I'm giving you could be a sermon in and of themselves. And so you will not be satisfied at the end of this. If if anything, you should take this and go study it yourself afterwards. Um, third, God's law sought to restore humanity's love and harmony with one another. In Genesis, both Cain and Lamech, as we already said, veered from God's good intentions. Right. They they didn't love others. They hated others. They murdered others. God didn't create them to do that. God created them to love and yet they veered from that. And so any kind of harm or violence that we do to others is ultimately going to be a, a, um, a veer away from God's good intentions. So the laws of Exodus sought to prevent that unnecessary killing of others. For example, in chapter 21 verses 12 through 14, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Now that, that offsettles some of us because in our culture we we don't like capital punishment. We don't like the idea of it. But here's basically what it's saying. A murderer is a living contradiction to what God created a man to be. Essentially he is. He's He's a walking contradiction to what God created man to be. God did not make us to fight with each other. God did not make us to hit one another. In fact, according to Paul... Paul says we men raise up our hands in anger against each other, and yet God made us to raise up our hands in prayer together. That's God's intentions for us. The law says that if two men get into a fight and hurt and one hurts the other, the aggressor is to pay for the wounded. Do you see what happens? The law sets things right, whereas One man is bent on hurting his brother. The law says if you hurt him, you have to change and go and heal him. Hurting hands, harmful hands by the law turn into healing hands. Things are set right. Whereas you sought to hurt him, you now care for him. You wounded him, now you're responsible to heal him because that's what God made you to do. To be gentle and loving and kind. Now the law protects against, also against all damage um, such as anti-creational violence might bring. Now it gives kind of this hypothetical situation. This is why I think the the laws given here—they're not just like nailed down. You know, these are these are official laws. These are kind of hypothetical laws, right? God by no means gave his people an exhaustive list of what they're supposed to do uh, in the land, but he gave them hypotheticals, case laws—that's what we call those. And, and, and you think of, you think of the case laws in our day, we typically go back to a trial, right? We give the name of the trial and that tells us of the outcome of the law, right? And so this is kind of what happens here. If two men get into a fight and one of them negligently throws a punch and it hits a woman who's pregnant. Guess what? His negligence shared a lack of care and concern for those around him, showed a lack of love, and so he's to make it right. This is where we get uh, what's often called the lex talionis. It's the law of retaliation, an eye for an eye. Uh, and he says it so much here in, in chapter 21, verse 24. You shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This lex talionis is making sure that we're not taking advantage of another's life. That we're respecting another's eye, another's tooth, another's wounds, another's stripes. That we're not just being haphazard with other human beings, but that we're going to show care and concern and love. That we're going to use our hands to do good, not to hurt. Loving others also meant ensuring that one's property did not enda- endanger the lives of other people. Um, texting and driving is in the Bible. How so? Let's look at it. Verses 28 through 30. When an ox scores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flex, flesh, not flex, shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, which means he can be, re- he can be rescued from death, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. Now the heart of this law is simply this. Show care for another's well-being. Show care for another's well-being. The way that we would do this in a modern context, if you know that your dog bites, keep it away from people. I think it's a good thing to get your car inspected. Why? Because getting your car inspected makes sure you don't get into a wreck and hurt other people. Don't text and drive, because if you text and drive, your car, your phone put others' lives in danger. You invite somebody to your house as little kids, it might be a good idea to go and cover the outlet sockets. We sure would appreciate it. It's just showing concern and care for others' well-beings, right? Um, one, I, I remember one guy who um, loved guns, for example. And he had read the story of how a neighbor's kid came over and got into his guns and shot himself. So he wanted to have a small group at his house for the church, wanted to open it up, wanted it to be hospitable, and he restructured his closet so there'd be a basic, virtually an unbreakable gun safe. And when asked why, he said, because the law calls me to share, uh, to care about others' well beings. I will spend the money to make sure the kids I have in my house will not kill themselves. That's a great application of this law. Can you imagine if everyone did that? If we all stop living as if the world centers around us and that our safety and well-being is the end all? What if the end all is another person's safety and well-being? What if the What if the law requires you not to just look out for yourself, but to look out for others as well? Not to watch your own feet to see what might cause you to trip and bust your head open, but to watch others' feet as well so they don't fall? What if the law just demanded of us? Hey, you want to live like Garden of Eden? You want to live the way God intended you to? Care for other people. Don't shrug your shoulders when somebody else's life is in danger. Fourth, God's law sought to restore God's order and authority over creation. The logic's simple here. We we have two laws that basically fall under this. It concerns parents and leaders. God made men and women. God made marriage. And so logically, by design, who made parents? God made parents. Where does parental authority come from? From God. It was God's intention that when parents taught their children, they would teach them the law. They would teach them what God requires. They would teach them about God. And so in Israel, yeah, all of you are nudging your kids and you're like, now don't tell them that you didn't obey this either, okay? Yeah, God. But in Israel, when you obeyed your parents, it was the same as obeying God essentially. Respecting and revering your parents was respecting and revering God because God has set up your parents for your good. So when He says anyone who curses, His parents, that's that's an absolute disrespect. Now, this isn't just a back-talking moment, so any of you who want to go apply this and stone your child next time they tell you why they don't do the dishes, that's not what this is saying. This is cursing. This is a heavy, heavy reviling of the parental authority. If if a child hits his parents, again, not a two-year-old slapping his mom or anything. We're talking about this absolute disregard for parental authority. The child is to be put to death. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? Sounds very harsh. (laughs) Some of you are like, well, no. (laughs) I set up counseling meetings. Come see me later. (laughs) But the idea here is that the world would run the way that God made it, right? God made parents to be an authority to teach their kids about God. And so a child usurping his parents, being violent to them. And I'm thinking of more like a teenager who punches his mom because he disagrees with her. That thing actually happens. Or a teenager who shoves his dad, right? That's the kind of idea that we have. That absolute distress, disregard for parental authority, guess what, is ultimately a disregard for whose authority? For God's. It's the same way with leaders. Who raises up and tears down leaders? According to Daniel 2.21, it's God. And so he says, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Now this is really tricky for us because we've had lots of rulers we don't agree with. Here's what he ultimately says don't disrespect them you might not agree with them you might disagree with them you might prophetically in, in the sense of telling the truth just say what they said was wrong what they want is wrong but at the same case the Bible calls us to respect and revere leaders second Timothy uh, first Timothy calls us to pray for them to pray for our leaders and in that context he's talking about Emperor Nero the madman the one who played his fiddle while his city burned pray for him. <laughs> Don't revile him. Don't talk, to, don't talk bad about him behind his back. But pray for him. I guarantee you the Christians did not agree with being set on fire alive. And yet, they still prayed for him. Because that was an application of this law. The law was to remind Israel that God is the ultimate divine authority. All authority, parental or leadership or whatever, comes from God. Fifth. God's law sought to restore His people's respect and gratitude for His provision. In the Garden of Eden, God had told Adam and Eve, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed. The same was true in Israel. Every Israelite's field, livestock and possession ultimately came from God. Ultimately came from God. It was a gift of His grace. And so, someone being irresponsible... That led to the damage or the destruction of God's of a God-given possession was to be uh, given restitution. You hear those words: the words restoration, repay, restitution. Those three words appear no less than nine times in chapter 21, verse 33 to chapter 22, verse 14. It reinforces the idea of making things right. In our modern context, we would call this reparation, reparation, which has the idea of repairing something that's been broken repairing something that has gone wrong. And so if an, if a neighbor's ox fell into your pit that you dug, you dug a pit, neutral ground, we're not talking about your property, but you dug a pit, perhaps you wanted to, to, to trap something you were hunting or whatever, and an ox, a neighbor's ox fell into that pit, it was your irresponsibility that led to the death of that God-given ox. So you're to make restitution. If one man's ox butted another ox and killed it, the men are to both share the concern. They share the dead ox for food and then they sell the live ox so that they can go now both buy a new ox. Join concern. We want to make it right. We want to honor God's possession. If a man's ox was known for violence and the owner was to repay ox for ox, the dead beast shall be his. And it goes on and on in these laws. If you let your animal graze on another's crops, if you negligently start a wildfire... If you um are borrowing something from someone and break it, all of these things require reparation, repair, what has been broken. God gave these people their things. And so in our day and age, it's like borrowing a car and wrecking it. Well, who's responsible? Imagine a world without insurance. Well, you borrowed it. You should have shown care for it. It was God's provision, provision for that person. Your irresponsibility and negligence led to the breaking of God's provision. Make it right. Make it right. We see the same thing with with thieves. And this is is really important. We're going to come back to this at the end of the sermon. But if a thief was caught with money or possessions or an ox, he's to pay double what he had taken. Double. That's what the law required. Why pay double? Well, you had stolen what God had given that person, and so you're to give double back to show that you are making restoration of their property. Finally, God's law sought to restore the truth. God created people to be trustworthy. Would we all, I think we're all in agreement with this, right? We should all tell the truth, right? We should all be faithful witnesses. Proverbs chapter twelve verse twenty two says, "Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord." You know what the word abomination means? It's a veer. It's a veer out of God's good creation. It's in it, it, the words actually mean they're disgusting to God, right? Whatever the abomination is, it's disgusting to God. Remember Genesis one thirty one: God made all things good. So truth was good. Telling a lie is an abomination. It's disgusting. It's not good. And so twice Israel is told. Hey, you are to tell the truth. Do not be a malicious witness. Do not take a bribe and subvert the cause of those who are in the right. The truth is what is needed to discover who's in the right. Who, who needs to be repaid what they've been uh, been wronged in. And so when, when you get in trouble or whatever and you lie about it, you're essentially saying, hey, I do not want things to be made right. I do not want things to be restored. I want it to remain broken. And that's a huge sin in God's law. So in conclusion, we're going to leave the law here in just a moment and consider its fulfillment. But underlying all these things, we have God's good creation reminding us that God created the world to be good, right? Justice seeks to make sure that that's done. It meant making fallen things upright again and making the crooked and broken wall of the world straight again. Now, as it is, Israel was not able to obey the law. If you fast forward into Deuteronomy chapter 29, Moses gives these very same laws a second time. And all Israel agrees, we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll obey God, all that he says we'll do. And listen to what Moses says. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. You know what he's saying in that? You don't have it in your heart to obey God. Your sinful heart will keep you from obeying the law. And what he said proven to be true. As you see their history unfolding, you find out that they're violent and they hated one another. They perverted justice by accepting bribes and committing injustices against the poor. They even sold each other into slavery. They committed adultery, re- rejected God's good intentions for marriage. They oppressed those that were under their debt by giving extreme interests. And stole from one another. And what Israel did is just a a reflection of what we all have done, right? Their sin is actually our sin. The only difference is they knew the law and failed to keep it. They knew the law and failed to keep it. But Paul speaks about all humanity when he says that no one is righteous. You know the word righteous is? No one is just. No, not one. He goes on to say, we have all turned aside from God's good creation. What then? God sent his son into the world to restore the creation that had been ruined. If we're talking about justice as a restoration of God's good plan, that's exactly what Jesus came to do. To restore the goodness that God had made. In his own words, he came to set at liberty those who had been oppressed, those who had been the recipients of injustice. He came to establish justice. He, he lived his life proclaiming the truth and calling people to repentance. And when lawbreakers met him, something remarkable happened. For example, we have Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He stole, he cheated, he defrauded, he, he, uh, defrauded people. He meets Jesus and he all of a sudden has a heart to do the law. He meets Jesus and listen to what he says in Luke chapter 9, 19, verse 9. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it, not double, like the law requires, I will restore it double, double, fourfold. So you hear what happens when lawbreakers meet Jesus? They don't just obey the law. They go above and beyond because they see who Jesus is and they realize the heart behind God's law is actually Jesus. And so it makes them go even above and beyond. Zacchaeus didn't pay double, like Exodus said. He paid fourfold. The same thing happened to adulteresses. What happened when adulteresses met Jesus? They gave up their adultery. What about zealots? You hear about Simon the Zealot, one of Jesus' followers? Zealots were murderers. What happened when a murderer met Jesus? They stopped killing, started loving. And then guess what? Sinners who were far away from God crowded into the house to eat with Him. Jesus made us upright. Ultimately, Jesus is the one who restores the crooked wall. And He does this specifically through His death on the cross. He Himself is upright. He Himself obeyed every standard of the law. Jesus died for the sinners. And and amazingly, in 1 Peter 3.18, Peter says... He died as the just for the unjust. Isn't that amazing? Just think about how this plays out through Exodus 20. He made restitution for the damage your sins had done. He repaid God the glory you stole. He restored that which you and I have ruined. He took the capital punishment for my violence and corruption. The blunt of lex talionis, eye for an eye, truth for a tooth, did not fall on me. It fell on him. Wait a second, he didn't hurt anyone's eye. It says he didn't even break a broken reed. A broken reed he would not break. And a smoldering wick he would not put out. He was so gentle and so kind and so loving. Why then? Was his eye hit? Why then was his tooth knocked out? Why then was his strikes given to him? Why then was he wounded? Why then was his life taken? It was to take the Lex Taliones from me. He was repaying the eyes that I have hurt, the teeth that I have knocked out, the lives that I have taken. He came to repay the wounds that I have given the strikes that I have given. He became a curse. Wow. The one through whom blessing came, the Son of God, perfect, became a curse so that we could be freed from the curse of the law. Galatians 3.13 He was buried in my tomb and He rose again to give me life. Jesus is the one God has given to restraighten, remake, repair the crooked wall. It's in Him alone that we are justified. That's the word. Know what that means? Declared right with God. I can't make myself right. I deserved every judgment that the law could give, and yet it is in Christ that I am declared innocent as if I have never broken it. As if I have never broken. I've broken many of them, but in Christ, He makes me right, declares me right, and it is as if I never broke the law. That is good news to adulterers, good news to murderers, good news to thieves, good news to slanderers and liars. Someone walked up to me today and asked me, hey, if I believe in Jesus and receive forgiveness from Him, does God remember everything I did in the past? No. It throws it as far as the east is from the west because guess what? There is now no condemnation, no judgment, no capital punishment, no restitution, no punishment that now goes on you because your sin, your crime has been paid for in Jesus Christ. Blood for blood. Life for life. His life for your life. That's the gospel according to the law. The law requires life and Jesus gave it. The law sets the price. Jesus paid it. But there's more. God calls us to obey His law still now. Exodus chapter 36 Verses 26 through 27. Listen, Moses told them in Deuteronomy 29, you do not, God has not given you a heart to obey his law. Exodus 36, listen to God's promise. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. I'll give you a beating heart the way that I intended it. That beats blood and love and compassion. And I will put my spirit within you. And then listen to these beautiful Beautiful words. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. From lawbreakers to lawkeepers. And what's the difference? A new heart and the Spirit of God working inside of us. I want you to hear this. Anyone who tries to live a right life without a right relationship with God, is ultimately living an unrighteous life. Righteousness comes in one way. It comes through being right with God. Not by being right in life, but by being right in God. One leads to another. To be right with God leads to a right life and leads to righteousness in life as you live. And for those of us who have trusted in Jesus... We are now free to obey God's law and to seek justice. Jesus was speaking of kingdom people, his people, when he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice, for they shall be satisfied. Now, on the one hand, yes, we have been satisfied because Jesus has justified us. And yet it seems like this is a present tense. We continue to hunger and thirst for justice, right? We continue our hunger and thirsting. And my friends, when I'm hungry, people know about it. My stomach grumbles. I grumble. When are we going to eat? When's lunchtime? Some of you are doing that right now. When are we getting out of here? The buffet's going on. What if we did the same thing to justice? When am I going to have justice? When are the poor going to stop being oppressed? When, God, are you going to make it so that every ethnicity gets the rights that they deserve? God, when are you going to make it so that injustice doesn't come to babies and the noble elderly? So we stop killing our elderly, stop killing our baby. When, God, are you going to give us justice? God, I'm hungry, I'm grumbling, and I'm hurting because I don't have it. The world should hear you audibly grumble for justice. They should hear it inside of you. They should hear it from your mouths. We hunger and thirst. so my friends, when it comes to social justice it 's not a matter of if we stand it 's a matter of we must stand for social justice that 's hungering and thirsting for it and before I conclude, I can hear some some thoughts <laughs> i can 't read minds, but I can hear your thoughts anyway. Um, I've heard many times when I talk about social justice, well, what's the point in doing that? Jesus is coming back. He's the only one that's going to restore justice in the world. And and I was talking about this with Brandon right before he left, and and I just thought, you know, this is a big thing that people say, that we don't need to seek justice because God's ultimately the one that's going to do justice. So why should we do things like call for equality of all ethnicities? Why should we do things? Like to go to a first look and volunteer so that women stop aborting their babies. Why should we do those things when ultimately people have in the back of their back of their mind that Jesus is going to do that? Brandon was so wise in the way he answered that. Do people see the need that they need to pursue holiness? Scripture calls us to holiness, does it not? It tells us to obey God and to be holy. And yet it also tells us that we're not going to be perfect until Jesus comes. And so we live in this tension. You pursue it, but you won't attain it until Jesus comes. But you still pursue it knowing that you're going to attain it when Jesus comes. It's the same thing with justice. We will not be satisfied until Jesus comes back. But it doesn't stop the hungering and thirsting now. It doesn't stop the grumbling stomachs for justice now. May we be a church of people who stand for justice for all people because Jesus is the justifier of all. He makes all things right. May we groan for that as God's people. And so it is we end our sermon praying the very prayer that Jesus prayed in the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your grace and your justice, Father. Your justice leads us to you. It shows us how crooked this wall has become. And we pray for Jesus to restore the wall and make it upright again. Begin with us, God, as your church. Make us just. Make us passionate about seeing things restored and made right. We pray this in your son's name.